0: Eugenics is probably not the first word you thought you would hear me say this morning. Trying to address all our social ills by determining who should and who should not have children was a phenomenon that lasted far too long in the United States, and especially in Virginia, where its institutions of sterilization were in operation for some 50 years during the 20th century. From 1924 to 1979, Virginia was the site of thousands of sterilizations of those determined defective, with many of those sterilizations happening without the consent of the sterilized. It was a cruel science that had no science behind it, and as our guest today argues, this was not a product of its time, simply a misguided belief system guided by people who didn't know any better. Eugenics was a Science conducted by evil people who are continuing the Confederacy's legacy of white supremacy. Is it any wonder that the same state had such an expansive system of eugenics would also see the rise of the far right culminating in the deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville? Eugenics may be something that was abandoned with sterilization becoming illegal in Virginia in the late 1970s, but its legacy of generations being taught the sick science in Virginia's most elite schools and universities Well, that had a huge impact on what the state and the entire country is today. In fact, you can see the legacy of eugenics around us if you know where to look and what to look for. In a few minutes, we will have the return of writer and public historian Elizabeth Catt, author of Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. Elizabeth is an editor-at-large for West Virginia University Press and the co-founder of PASL, an applied history and consulting company. This is Elizabeth's third appearance on This Is show. This is Hell. <laughs> this Is Show. Oh, that would be a good name for a show. On This Is Hell, she was on most recently, nearly three years ago to the day. We're having a lot of guests on this week who were on in February in the past. So she was on back in February 2018 when we talked about her book, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. She was also on in July 2017 to discuss her article that had just been posted at Salon Liberal Shaming of Appalachia. Inside the media elites, this obsession with the hillbilly problem for Salon. You can find out more about Elizabeth at com, And you can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Elizabethcat—that's C that's T E. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. Well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? Anything new by you? I understand you took mass transit recently, and that is something I have not done since the pandemic started because... That scares the hell out of me. Every bus I see go by, you know, I don't live anywhere near an L or at a subway, and there's no, like, streetcar line by here, so I don't know about the trains. But every time I see a bus go by, there might be two or three people in it, maybe. So it doesn't look that scary, but still, man, I am not going on mass transit. But You did?
1: I did, and it was uh, a pretty disheartening <laughs> experience. Um, so... Uh, yeah. So last week Monday, I had a doctor's appointment, Okay. and I thought I was going to do the right thing, because it was like right after the snowstorm, right? Which was only like a four or five in, in Chicago standards of snowstorms, right? right? Right. But the uh, side streets and alleys were still kind of messy. So, so I tried. You know, I decided to take the bus.
0: Yeah, you have a garage, so you're yeah. kind of screwed because alleys yeah. don't get cleared.
1: My my neighbor's like a construction guy, and they they kind of cleared it out eventually. But it, but but yes, normally. Yeah. You, you, you never know what the alleys are going to be like. Right. Uh, anyway, so I decided to take the bus. Uh, and so I went out, got on the bus. That was fine. It was fairly crowded, but right away I sat down. There was one woman not wearing a mask at all. Two other people, you know, not really wearing them correctly. And this one woman was totally a contrarian and there was nothing no one was gonna say to get her to, you know, put her mask on or whatever.
0: Were people trying to get her to do it?
1: No, but it was weird because there was a bus driver and then there was another guy, another CTA employee, who was up at the bus, up at the front of the bus, and he was looking around. He he was kind of not checking on everybody, but seeing what the situation was. Right. Anyway, so I don't know, whatever. They just let it slide. So, but here's 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 the here's the, the disheartening thing is, the buses have a capacity. And once you reach that capacity, it's like 10 or 12 people, mm-hmm. the bus will not pick up any more people until people get off the bus. <laughs> so it basically becomes an express bus until, you know, somebody gets off. And so, um, you know, if you live at a mile, you know, like a, if you live like a mile either side of like a train station. Right. You're the ones who are going get screwed because the buses are going to get filled up before that point. And we, you know, we passed numerous, and there's, it's not like there's more buses coming. Right. And so, and it's not the CTA, you know, I mean, the CTA, this isn't a rant against the CTA. Right. You know, they're, they're stuck in a hard place be- between, you know, providing transportation and providing safe transportation, I guess, or whatever. So, I guess the, the bottom, the, 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 the takeaway is, if you have the means and resources to not take a bus, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Because you are taking, you know, if you do take the bus, and you have the means and resources to not, you're taking away a spot from someone who really needs to take the bus.
0: Right, exactly, because you
1: don't, you have a car. Yeah, I have a car, and you know, I didn't have to take the bus, but I thought I was doing the right thing.
0: But in reality... I
1: wasn't. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Jesus. (laughs) So even when you're trying to do the right thing during a pandemic, you're doing the wrong thing. I had no idea that there was a, a, I guess I would assume that there was going to be a limit on number of people on the buses. But still, how harsh is it if you're out there in two degree weather and all of a sudden the bus just goes right by you?
1: Yeah, it was totally a rude awakening to to my white privilege because, you know. Like I said, I thought I was helping out, and I, and I wasn't, because I was taking away a spot from somebody who may really need to take the bus.
0: Is this the Grand Avenue bus?
1: No, it was the North Avenue, actually. Still. So, But, you know, yeah, exactly. That's a bus that people and, really
0: depend upon and, a lot.
1: And, and on my way back, I, I was at the Red Line station, and I was like, oh, man, am I even going to be able to get on? And, and I was. I got on, but then, like, there were so many people who got on, the bus couldn't pick up any more people until someone got off. Wow. So yeah, it was it was rough.
0: More importantly, Richard, what's this week's question from Hell?
1: What are you awake thinking about? at 3 o'clock in the damn morning.
0: (laughs) The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, you can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth Jeff empathizes with savages and samurai Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again What are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? What are you awake Thinking about it, at three o'clock in the damn morning, following our interview with Elizabeth Cat, live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. And you, like I said, you can email us, you can tweet to us, you can, you know, send us direct message via Twitter. You can send us a message via Facebook, and it, about anything. You have any comments on the show, guests or topic suggestions, any criticism you have, whatever. And that's what Andrea did in response to us asking if we should have politicians on the show, despite our rule, which is more of a guideline to never have anyone from big politics or business on the show, as they seem to be the only ones who are given access to the establishment media. And as this is not the media, this is hell. We asked. You, if we should, still adhere to our rule. Again, that's really a guideline. Andrea sent us a message on the topic via Facebook, writing, Chuck, every time you mention bringing a politician on the show, my middle finger leans toward the radio. Stop giving even the mention airtime. Just a suggestion. I guess I should have read that entire message before mentioning the suggestion of having politicians on the show again. Steve also wrote to us to concur with Andrea. Steve says, in response to your request earlier this month, earlier this year, no politicians should be guests on the show, regardless of party affiliation. There are too many other voices to be heard. So look, that clinches it, okay? Everybody? Until the next time some organization asks us to have on their elected politician who they swear will be the one that can truly transform our entire system into one that is more caring and less cruel. And we look forward to that future of you again telling us to never have politicians on This Is Hell. On Facebook earlier this month, Alex shared a documentary called One Straw Revolution, which is about Masanobu... Fukuoka, and what is called Natural Farming. The film is from the aughts, from the 2000s, but the book is from the 1970s. So, listener Christopher saw the link in Alex's comment about how he had been blown away by watching the documentary, and Christopher messaged us via Facebook, writing, If you are blown, if your mind is blown by one straw revolution, wait until you pick up something from Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, working out the same concepts in Australia. Christopher writes, I got infected by permaculture a little over a decade ago and have been diving down the rabbit hole ever since. At its root, is a, it is really a rediscovery of largely lost indigenous practices of looking to work with nature and identifying points where you can apply tweaks to natural system in or, systems in order to increase their productivity and capture a greater yield while simultaneously increasing the health of the overall ecosystem. Fukuoka had a way of expressing these ideas unlike anyone else. One of his quotes from the book stated in the video has always stuck with me, according to Christopher. The quote is, Farming is not about the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. Profound. That is Profound Christopher, and now i got to check out the documentary Alex was wowed by and Christopher loved One Straw Revolution on permaculture and the work of the late Masanobu Fukuoka. Again, if you have any guest suggestions or topic ideas or any comments at all on the show, send them to us via email at chuck at this is tweet them to us at this is hell Radio or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell Radio. Coming up on This Is Hell, eugenics may be a thing of the past in the United States, but it has left an indelible imprint on the entire country. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? What are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is Hell. The history of eugenics in the United States is not an old history or a forgotten history or a secret history that is only now being discovered. It is a history that is well known, especially in places like Virginia, which for over 50 years embraced eugenics as a science and put it into practice by sterilizing those deemed defective with whether they got their consent or not. Here to help us understand yesterday's past of eugenics and how it affects our present today. Returning to This Is Hell, we are very happy to have back on the show writer and public historian Elizabeth Cat, author of Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Elizabeth.
2: Hey, good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me back on the
0: show. This is Elizabeth's third appearance on This Is Hell. She was on <laughs> most recently, nearly three years ago to the day, back in February of 2018, when we talked about her book, what you are getting wrong about Appalachia. You can find out more about Elizabeth at Elizabethcat.com. That's C A T T E, and you can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Elizabethcat. You were also on the first time you were on was in July of 2017 to talk about an article you had at Salon.com called "Liberal Shaming of Appalachia: Inside the Media Elite's Obsession with the Hillbilly Problem." And before we get to your book, I want to talk about the media's hillbilly problem when it comes <laughs> to what happened on January 6th. I saw an interview. That you did uh, About the events at the U.S. Capitol Following President Trump's rally In it you said some of the danger Comes directly out of capital attack coverage Trash pieces like the one by Caitlin Flanagan at The Atlantic Describing the insurrectionists As arriving with bellies full of beer And sausage McMuffins Maybe a little high on Adderall Fixated on the image of a bunch of rednecks That kind of coverage means We have ended exactly where we started from With this idea that this moment has been given to us by white, poor, rural people. Such stories erase complicity by upper-middle-class white people and reveal the tendency to turn up our noses at any nuanced portrayal of complicated issues of race, class, and power that are actually at play here. What, what do you think motivates that desire to erase complicity by upper-middle-class white people when it comes to Trump and the Capitol siege? Why, why do pundits, commentators, and those in the establishment media seemingly avoid any nuanced portrayals of complicated issues of race, values, and power, and instead just look for rednecks.
2: Well, I don't, I don't mean to be a broken record on this, um, but I I think that when pundits talk about a hillbilly problem, the, the concerns they're describing are just white people problems, um, but they don't want to articulate it that way. So they compartmentalize uh, sort of sort of these toxic attitudes and beliefs and, and lower class white people um, and and I think part of this motivation also comes from the fact that among sort of well-educated uh, middle class white people there's this kind of I think perverse uh, need to imagine that also white people are the victims of racism in their own way. so for example, um, if you look at somebody who, of this mythic person that they that they like to imagine, a person from West Virginia, for example, who is very poor, um, struggling economically, isn't cultured according to their standards. um, And you apply sort of these racist beliefs to them. It's, It's almost like instant karma, if that makes sense. Because they can show that, you know, in addition to all all of the the ways that their beliefs reflect other people, they are, you know, suffering for it. And that's like the way that the world should work. So hillbillies are really good is what I'm trying to say at discussing racism as an abstract, but not in terms of discussing structural racism. And when we start talking about structural racism, then we implicate um, a whole host of other other people and particularly other white people. So I think that's one of the reasons why and, and then, you know, people just enjoy being being snobby about these things. There's like the deployment of cultural signifiers is, is fun for them, which is why you get those kind of graphic depictions of Adderall and beer and biscuits and things like that. So, it, I mean, it's it's fun for them to write.
0: Exactly. And you also said that the fact is that Appalachia and other rural places tell a story that is very pleasing to capitalism, that some people are willing to die for their work. So are Appalachians not only disposable to capitalism, but to the media too. Does that does that capitalist disposability then it reflected in the media?
2: So I think the connection between those two two points, which are which are sort of separate but come together in some ways, and you know, I, I had written a book about 2016 election coverage, and that's that's a really profound moment for me when those kind of polls come together. But the idea is that uh, pe- people who live in places like Appalachia are powerless. Um, so it it's safer so not only does that make them you know kind of disposable in our, our current system, but it also makes them uh, easy uh, they, they absorb they can absorb lots of lot, uh, lots of beliefs um, lots of perceptions, lots of outlooks in a way that kind of otherizes them and makes them makes makes other people sort of um, create a more a more palatable narrative about what's happening in this country if you imagine that the real problems are located in this sort of far off place among people who are, who are powerless. And again, I think that's why, um, you have a lot of talk about the, you know, the abstraction of, of racist, uh, rural people or racist hillbillies, um, because it, it allows them to talk about some of those issues without bringing in and folding in structural racism. And so my, you know, my, my issue with, with pieces like Flanagan's is not necessarily that there's snooty, although I'm happy to, to call that out. It's that you know, by that point in time, when, when they were writing those pieces, we understood that those capital rioters had names and we knew them um, and we could talk about them as individuals. And so for me, as somebody from this part of the world, it's much more <laughs> useful to talk about someone who has a name like Derek Evans, who is from a less powerful place, but as a former member of the West Virginia House of Delegates has power within his community. Um, and he has lots of supporters who were happy to endorse his beliefs before they became before they were put to this violent end, and so those are the questions and nuances that that are useful to I think people who live in these you know live in the, these places that are talked about rather than this abstraction that happens in the media
0: So just one last question, Anna. what do you think it mm-hmm. is about Appalachians that seemingly outsiders want to take their power away <laughs>
2: I, I don't think. I, I mean, th- their power has already been taken away, so I don't think it's um, like a karmic wish or anything like that. The the people here don't, you know, they 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 don't have a lot of of power to leverage, and that's sort of a, a self fulfilling prophecy in terms of, um, you know, m- m- charting a path towards the future. But it is important, and I I always want to mention that even though I, I talk about Appalachia as a powerless place in in, in general, that that we do have hierarchies. In Appalachia, for example, we often get um, talked about in terms of the environmental destruction that's happening here, but we also have issues like environmental racism, where environmental destruction happens unevenly in some communities. So there are, you know, there are kind of like these two Appalachias that people talk about. There's this real um, place that that I live in and, and that my, you know, my comrades live in. And then there's this idea that, of Appalachia that continues to circulate um, out there in the media that is very useful for compartmentalizing um, beliefs that, that that seem dangerous and that need to be talked about, but not talked about in a way that makes uh, systems like capitalism complicit and makes white people like middle-class white people complicit.
0: You write in your book again. We are speaking with Elizabeth Cat and her new book is Pure America: Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. You can find out more about Elizabeth at Elizabethcat and you can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Elizabeth Cat that's C A T T E. You write how in the late nineteenth and early early twentieth centuries, eugenics was supplanted by or the, this kind of approach of humane. Uh, treatment of people who were Disabled was supplanted by a long era in the History of psychiatric medicine When therapeutic efforts primarily Focused on containment and control not Care or cure more and more People perceived to have disabilities along with Those who couldn't care for themselves due To poverty or age were viewed by society As an expensive and disorderly class Prone to criminal behaviors and indigence Communities began to demand Financial relief from the costs associated with Helping them survive by institutionalizing Individuals in great greater numbers, communities could pass their local financial costs to the state and rid themselves of people who were thought to lead unproductive lives. This is the step before eugenics. This is the kind of containment and confinement of those who are seen as defective. What is missed when our history of capitalism in the market does not include a past of institutionalizing the expensive and disorderly class prone to criminal behaviors in Indigence does it affect our ability to recognize that kind of institutionaliz- institutionalization that may persist to this day?
2: Yeah, so there there are kind of like a couple of, of moments in the history of of medicine. I'm not really an expert on, on on the history of medicine, but I can I can summarize this a little bit. Um, there's the era of moral medicine, which um, you talked about and I talked about in the book when I'm talking about um, a desire to to bring. Humane treatments into psychiatric medicine. So, to supplant systems where, for example, restraints were used on patients and they were confined in institutions and environments that resemble jails and prisons. Um, and then, you know, it, around the start of the 20th century, what happens is uh, lifespans are increasing. Um, there's more people living in the country due to immigration. Um, there's more people who, for example, are, are elderly and, and and are becoming unable to take care of themselves. And so in communities across, uh, not just in Virginia, but, but across the country, um, there's a, a growing resentment towards the fact that there are people who can't or are perceived to not be able to take care of themselves. And there's resentment towards uh, the kind of shared responsibility for helping them survive. There's some choices for people uh, to, to be placed in local communities. These include almshouses, jails, orphanages, institutions like that. Um, if, if a person can be cared for by their family, certainly that was the, 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 the best situation. But there's this really kind of like shunning of a collective responsibility to, to help people um, survive. And, and so that that opens up an era of institutionalization and we kind of hang in this moment of of mass institutionalization until the 1960s and so one, one narrative of these changes might might suppose for example that um, once deinstitutionalization sort of comes to an end in the 1960s this is because that uh, it's it's because that physicians and practitioners and policymakers discovered that earlier moment, uh, that earlier humanitarian moment, this moral medicine moment, or they, they advanced better treatments and better, better medicines and better therapeutic approaches that allowed people to leave long-term confinement in psychiatric institutions. But it's really just also a, a, thing, a thing that is uh, also, also uh, brought into being by, by the fact that this, the state simply just didn't want to pay um, for the operation of these large institutions and wanted to kind of cut costs. And when they looked at cutting costs, they, they looked at the people who are most vulnerable. So those are some of the ideas that are Im- embedded in, in sort of these broad attitudes towards psychiatric medicine that, that go on in the background of stories about eugenics and stories about um, vulnerable people and, and sort of what responsibilities people wanted to assume for their, their fellow man.
0: And that deinstitutionalization in Virginia actually has a legacy here in Chicago, just a few blocks away in the uptown neighborhood, Mm. when in the 60s and 70s they were busing in people from Virginia, from West Virginia, who had been deinstitutionalized from these places where they had been... Put, put away as seen as being defective And that that has had a major Impact on the history of Uptown and the north side of Chicago they're, Actually, Elizabeth, there's a great movie about it From the 60s mm-hmm. called Medium Cool And they filmed oh, it right. during The Democratic National Convention in 68 So the actual riots, police Riots are happening around them as they're Filming the movie. You should definitely check this Movie out. It's called Medium Cool. It's really awesome So you also write that according To legal scholar Laura Appleman. By 1923, more than 263,000 people were institutionalized nationwide, which meant, in Appleman's words, the first modern mass incarceration was not of criminal offenders, but of the disabled that made me think about a conversation we had years ago with historian Alfred McCoy and how he said whatever the United States does overseas in wars against their enemies that usually comes home that stuff same stuff kind of stuff like drones start being turned on the regular and the domestic population so was institutionalization of the disabled the blueprint the dry run for mass incarceration as a way to Get rid of people that were determined to have unproductive lives when it comes to contributing to our political economic system. what what does what's done? It was this kind of defective nature that they thought that people had that they should be institutionalized because they are, you know disabled or have some. Criminal tendency? Did that was that just again just turned against everybody? Were, were we seeing this as hey, that's not so bad. It's being done to defective people. That could never be done to us. And then it was turned on us.
2: So attitudes towards criminalization, um, especially in places like Virginia, which are part of the South, uh, are, are also shaped in in profound ways by by the institution of chattel slavery and, and particularly um, what happens. Post 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 Civil War post slavery when when uh Virgin when Virginians other Southerners other Americans set their mind to the task of determining how they're going to um, continue to enforce productivity out of Black people and how they're going to replicate uh, as close as they they could those those conditions that that existed and so that's part of the story um, as well but in this era and and how this connects to eugenics is, is the idea that a large range of people owed their productivity to the state. So not only did they have to be productive, they they had to uh, work in some way, but they had to do it according to, to the state's terms. And if they could not do that, they were considered expensive and disorderly. And that of course includes people with disabilities, um, it includes people who who couldn't care of themselves because of poverty or or, or age. and and it includes these newly invented classes of people, um, what they the the people that eugenicists called feeble-minded, for example. And there are subdivisions of those categories. And so when eugenicists start to think about where where the menace is, where the 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 menace is lurking, they they say, generally, We are concerned with people who are, in their words, um, hereditarily deficient in mental capacity. And if you press them to articulate why that danger um, existed and what made them so so dangerous, um, they would say they they're expensive. They're antisocial. And so, yes, this is this is also a way that um, Virginians and and believers in eugenics, were trying not to just, um, you know, achieve genetic or racial purity, but a kind of economic purity, too, where they could almost, um, you know, set, set, um, set aside a class of menial workers who would be insured for the future purpose of of doing this kind of work by the fact that they couldn't reproduce or have children to interrupt their productivity, that they wouldn't create scandals in the workplace by their ability to become or get people, get other people pregnant. And so these, these kind of, these, these connections are really, really, uh, I think, profound and deep and heavy in, in Virginia, again, because this is happening in in a Southern context where, where those ideas about, um, productivity and, and labor and and sort of the, the naturalness that came with thinking about uh, a, a specific class of people who are meant to do this work, where those were already in existence and, and had already done done work for several generations.
0: Yeah, I found it really interesting that it's not just about trying to create some sort of mythologized Aryan race or something, but also trying to create a homo economicus, a kind of uh, a person who is always going to make, be making the rational decisions within capitalism so the economy can move forward. Mm-hmm. I found that really fascinating. You you also write of eugenics in addition to diagnosing, and the scientists who support it, it in addition to diagnosing their patients, physicians began enumerating the financial burden and social dangers associated with their survival. Proponents of a rapidly growing movement to study and control human breeding found the pressure point of a unifying message. Allowing the unfit to reproduce was tantamount to creating a societal debt that could never be repaid. So enumerating the financial burden, determining societal debt, was this an early attempt at quantitatively understanding humanity through data and algorithms? And and how much is, because you, you point out in your book, how you can see the legacy of eugenics everywhere. How much are things like credit ratings and outcome of eugenics?
2: Oh, I don't know about um, credit ratings, but I think um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, um, as, you, as you probably had your eye on too, um, there's there's several new wage laws making their way um, towards Congress. And, and in some versions of the, the, the $15 an hour wage, wage laws, um, there are versions of, of these laws that are attempted to phase out uh these loopholes that that have that exist in our employment laws and have existed for some time that make it a perfectly legal arrangement for example to pay disabled people um far less than minimum wage and to pay them a lot less than their non-disabled coworkers, and um also to to do things like pay disabled workers by the each or the piece and so having sort of um realities like that in the present in my mind as I was working through these examples uh of of you know the 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 history of Virginia eugenics is it was really sort of uh not surprising but but shocking. Um one of the most sort of sort of illuminating documents that that I found while I was researching is that um, when When the state of Virginia tried to reach out to its constituent members, so this would be people who were in charge of their prisons, for example, in charge of psychiatric institutions, when they reached out to them and tried to produce guidance that sort of explained like, hey, we have uh, this new category of of disability in our Commonwealth. we have people minded people, and we need to kind of see them as, as as sort of a public health threat number one, there was a tendency to to subdivide these groups or people in these groups into kind of further categories such as imbeciles morons um terms like that and so to explain all the all of these differences which might be overwhelming because again this is a, a, a sort of a, a new phenomenon but based on old ideas the state of virginia explained those differences in the type of work each each category was thought to be able to perform most productively so it explained that some some people are uh, you know um suited to work that requires reasoning, some people are just suited to to uh, menial labor, manual labor, and so on and, and so forth. And it sort of did an illustration of these uh, different, different representatives of these groups personified sort of climbing a stair step and how far can they get up the ladder um, based on their ability to perform different types of work. And so I think that um, this is an era where there was significant um, attempts to to calibrate the kind of perfect productivity for you know across a across a range of different kinds of people from uh, people who are incarcerated to people who are confined um, in in mental health facilities to people who might be working out in the community who resembled the type of people who might be incarcerated at one point or confined into an institution at one point. And so the fingerprints of those decisions are all over uh, the early history of, of eugenics and, and sort of still remain in some of the ways, like I said, that, that we, um, the legacy is in our things like our employment laws and things with, you know, actu- actuarial importance to, to, um, to the whole.
0: So, who benefits then today from eugenics? Because you write, eugenics didn't just alter the lives of people, it also altered land and geography. It changed how institutions grew, and it gave Virginians confidence that they could claim the physical world just as readily as they claimed the bodies of its citizens. These alterations also produced assets and provided convenient ways to mark geographies as pure or impure. All of these changes had economic implications, and they're intimately tied into very real profits and losses in the present. So, who profits in the present? Who benefits? From eugenics today,
2: I mean that's the question that's at the center of my book, um, and I think in, in in sort of writing that, um, and this is not a this is not a cop out, but but part of the 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 importance is just asking that question in the first place, even if we don't have firm answers to that. So understanding that there's a range of complicities um, with this in the past and, and and in the present too is is part of the importance of of thinking about questions like this. Although I do have some firm answers uh, in the book. And so I can offer the example of an institution uh, like the University of Virginia, uh, which rose to prominence in the, the early 20th century because it functioned like a larder while stocked with eugenics and sort of set its reputation on being a center of eugenic teaching. And so I think, you know, obviously for me, it's a fair question to say, what does the university you know, what, what responsibility does the University of Virginia have, um, for, for sort of leveraging its reputation, its, its prestige, um, towards, towards these kind of very, very destructive ends. And this is not the only sort of, sort of vantage point that that you can take when sort of thinking about things like complicity. Virginia, University of Virginia, for example, has done, um, good work, uh, recently on, on the institution's history of, enslavement but there there are you know lots of other other vantage points to take as well and certainly i think you can say yes the university of virginia did in fact benefit because the reputation of its alumni and the reputation of its faculty was earned by advancing eugenic beliefs um it's sort of a separate question to to think about well well what is is there is there something owed in return for that and and sort of that's a more complicated part of that that question too but um yeah, examples in the book include the University of Virginia, um, the National Park Service, which um, sort of leveraged eugenic beliefs in, in, in the way that states and, and federal workers depopulated those areas to make room for the national park. And, you know, it includes developers who have set their sights on transforming um, former state hospitals into, and this is what is happening in my community, sort of luxury developments. So there's those direct connections, too, but um, I don't want to discount any sort of um, importance in just just asking, just asking those questions about who benefits and, and what is owed.
0: Well, so a really good example, then, is how do you see eugenics in any way having an influence, an impact or any kind of effect in what occurred in 2017 in Charlottesville, in Virginia, at the Unite the Right rally, does does you see eugenics playing itself out in those deadly protests?
2: Well, certainly the language that um, individuals, far right individuals, used uh, to articulate their beliefs, or, or, you know, their deep parallels in the in the in, within the eugenics movement, and particularly, um, they advanced a. A kind of um, resistance to replacement theory. So they were saying things like "Jews will not replace us" and "You will not replace us," and sort of those have pretty straightforward, <laughs> straightforward connections to um, um, ideas that were in circulation in Virginia and, and nationwide in the eugenics era. Um, but I think that one of the one of the things about Sort of looking at Virginia in that moment in time in, in twenty seventeen is is you can really see just how far reaching this history is and how it connects to to even deeper past. Um, the Unite the Right gets a lot of a lot of focus for understandable reasons, but in in talking about that moment in Charlottesville, I think it's important, and I do this in the book to talk about what happened before. So this uh, this sort of like public public deliberation to sort of reorient Charlottesville's historical narrative to be more truthful. That was a longstanding, um, that was a, you know, that was, that was, that was a, a subject of longstanding deliberations in the city. And of course there's, there's, there's things that came after too that are important. So the, the the public history tours that are happening um, in Charlottesville that tell a more truthful story about the orientation between race and space and place um, are, are important. And, and, and all of these, these um, offerings are ways that we can see and try to make, to, to make visible um, the connections between the past and the present that, that I think are equally as useful um, to, to just singling out that moment in time as well.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the context. When when Charlottesville was being reported on in the establishment media in 2017, they didn't give that context of years of deliberations over this more accurate history that Charlottesville was trying to embrace. And and this uh, this all, already they had this concern over the uh, Confederate statues that were in the in the area. And you write that in the early 20th century, the University of Virginia also functioned as an academic larder, well stocked <laughs> with eugenesis and in- Institution, by the way, thank you for using the word larder instead of pantry. I appreciate that. (laughs) An institution described by current University of Virginia uh, history professor Elizabeth Varon as an incubator for lost cause ideology. That's the idea the Confederate cause was just and heroic. Ambitious white faculty eager to embrace their reputations claimed as scientific law the truth of their own genetic perfection and taught students who would go on to populate Virginia's highest political offices, the medical field and the law, So is today's interest and support for the lost cause ideology a legacy of Virginia's 40 year interest, 50 year interest in eugenics? Is this another legacy of if, if eugenics had been confronted, had been considered in the way that you wish it had, would the lost cause ideology be where it is today?
2: Oh, I think, I think it, I think it's, I think it would be where it is today for sure. Um, But I think it's important to also kind of pull back um, several generations and, and understand what eugenics was meant to do in, in Virginia um, in the sense that in the 1920s and, and earlier, and a little bit earlier too, but Virginia is at this, this crossroads where it wants to kind of distinguish itself from the rest of the South. It wants to improve its reputation. It wants to say, I'm not a backwards. Um, You know, we're not a backwater place We're we're forward facing people who are willing to embrace the future, willing to modernize, willing to embrace science. Um, And eugenics is such a a tremendously opportunistic way that they can do that while still holding on to sort of the past. Uh, So so eugenics, although it would it was presented as cutting edge and new and, and sort of like on the cusp of, of, sci- of scientific advancements. It doesn't, it's explicit in its beliefs is the promise that if you are, you know, a, a good white person, that your world is not going to be stabilized whatsoever. It's going to offer you a way to defend yourself from these kind of um, imagined attacks by black people. It's going to protect you from um, the threat of poor whites from within. It's going to sort of Still, still maintain the subordination of women. So nothing about the way that power works in society is going to change. And so the embrace of eugenics in Virginia was, was this just like a, a fantastic veneer for people like the faculty at the University of Virginia to apply to, to their beliefs to make them seem modern and, and um, in, in lockstep step with the times. Um, and so this is important to the lost cause because um, it it makes what they were doing, you know regards to kind of enshrining Confederate memories and, and things of that nature, it, it makes it seem just you know like a small con- concession to to the past, towards this larger project of, of bringing forward the future. And, I mean that's what that's what I think and, and and so, but it is sort of interesting the way that um, lost cause ideology kind of takes, a, takes um eugenic dimensions we start talking about robert e. lee is like the perfect specimen of a man um and things and things of that nature so so yeah it, it all takes place in in this um moment in time in virginia where we want to <laughs> embrace the future but we still find use for the past
0: and you point out that we are still coming to terms with the legacy of eugenics, even though its origins and early applications are well documented. Its legacy still exists in our current immigration laws and our for-profit healthcare systems. So I want to talk about the, both of those. How how do you see eugenics affecting our immigration laws today?
2: Uh, so so most immigration laws are, are positioned as 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 a way to as a you know rationing mechanisms. Um, immigration restrictions were, were a significant way that eugenicists of the 1920s sort of gained their reputations. Um, they, they supported harsh, harsh, harsh immigration restrictions um, and were able to ingratiate themselves in the upper echelons of, of political, uh, political circles because they could provide uh, what was seen as sort of scientific rationale for excluding immigrants, particularly from Asia, particularly from um, Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, so, so there's that, that connection in, in the past. And, and today we still you know sort of use that, that rationing language, although, um, oh, I was going to say, although they, 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 that it's less common to see that sort of like that, that ugly biological language in there. But then I remember that Stephen Miller exists Um, and people like Steve and Steve King exist who are, who sound exactly like they, they are alive in the 1920s when they say, you know, we can't save our country with somebody else's babies. Um, so yeah, definitely a dimension to, to immigration debates that, that doesn't seem far removed from the era of those earlier restrictions. But, but generally speaking, and this connects to healthcare to this sort of like preoccupation, artificial preoccupation with rationing in this country and how we, we are, uh, just just deeply invested in believing that we don't have enough resources for everyone, even though we do, and even though that's a lie, um, this lie takes many, many forms. And so this, this might be um, an era where I think some, some, some other experts say that this is a moment, um, today, the one that we're living in is, is, is the vast era of passive eugenics, where we don't necessarily try to engineer directly engineer um sort of the elimination of certain people but we 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 stack the deck against them so significantly that we are assured of that outcome and uh don't take any any steps just to stop it and over and over again the justification of that is we don't have enough to go around and that was the same then and it's and it's the same now
0: You also uh, write that eugenics underlies our fascination with Malin DNA tests and ancestry. It's probably going to annoy a lot of people who are listening right now who just got an ancestry.com for Christmas. But isn't that uh, genetics? And aren't they two very different things? Can't we have an interest in even degrees in genetics without being somehow connected to eugenics? And if it cannot, should we just dismiss genetics as well?
2: So I'm no expert on gen- on genetics. I will say, you know, of course, yeah, I do. You know, to, to, that's that's fine. Um, you you all are much, you know, they're they're much smarter people than me on, on genetics. But but I think the point when I raise uh, ancestry tests is is there's you know the the truth in Virginia in in the past is that we had um, sort of these racial composition laws in the state that said. Um, basically there' just there're just two races there's white and there's colored and there's nothing in between and um, this was significantly disadvantageous and, and completely destructive to Virginia's native peoples for example who were racially reclassified simply as colored um, and resulted in sort of the the bureaucratic destruction of of, of their their their, his, their histories in, in some respects and, and made it really really difficult for them to proceed with the um, the federal recognition process set forward by the, the federal government and I think that um, and in Virginia was ordered by sort of these so-called one-drop rules where uh, this common and, and quasi-legal belief especially in the south that if somebody has um, at least one uh, black ancestor for all intents and purposes that that person is black and so given that the past was ordered in this way, it's, um, interesting that now today, uh, ancestry tests offer a way, particularly for, for white people to kind of say, well, I'm part this and I'm part that and, and, and sort of, um, think about their identity on the basis of, of, of those facts. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, not not everybody that, that does it is is, is doing it for, for malicious ways or to do it to to claim you know a minor a minoritized identity, a la Elizabeth Warren, for example. But I you know I can't ignore the fact that eugenicists of the past would have thought that, that was really that was really cool, that um, we've returned to the proposition that, that who we are is written into our genes.
0: So you write what would the people who were targeted biogenics say. What those people would say and what they have said is that nothing about what was done to them made any sense. If some of us are able to make sense of it now because it did not happen to us, then that's a gift. But it does not grant us permission to build a legacy on a series of excuses. And you argue that these people were just evil. There's just no question about it. They weren't people of their time. They weren't people who you know, Their heart was in the right place. There was no altruism in eugenics. It was all just cruel, evil acts. So it made no sense back then either. Was everyone keenly aware the whole thing was a sham science and made no sense? And if everyone was in on the con, what, what was to be gained, taken, or stolen?
2: So I'm not sure if I would say that that eugenicists of the of the past were were evil. And I only say that because I don't really I, you know, I'm not religious, so I don't really think in those terms. But I, I'm happy to stipulate that they are that I find the ones that I write about creeps like a one creeps. Um, and that, that that's
0: a really that's a really important <laughs> distinction, too, because somebody who is e- a creep is not necessarily evil. But you're right. A one creeps.
2: Um, that, you know, some were very, very smart, some were not so bright, um, some were Machiavellian, um, and some uh, were just sort of along for the ride. And so there's, there's, there's variations on the types of creeps that they are, but, but at least the ones that, that I write about in the context of Virginia, that's how I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm totally happy to to characterize uh, them, them in that that way Um, so one of the 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 ways that eugenics works its magic is it um produces and produces a a fear in in people that there are things that are invisible threats and dangers um so so they tried to bend they tried to bend reality around the fact that you know, in in lots of cases, the the people who were problems weren't weren't really problems, and and even if they were sort of problems in the way that they were thought about, that did, that didn't mean that they should be you know deprived of their reproductive freedom or institutionalized. But the science of eugenics says that 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 it's um, that we're at this really dangerous moment because we can't see we can't see where the danger lies, um, and and so a lot of people that. You know that made sense to them. It was something that they that they were comfortable hearing. That it sort of gave a logic to to their hysteria, the hysteria that they were having about black people, the hysteria that they were having about about poor white people as well. And so this is the way that that magic kind of works by legitimizing and moving a doomsday clock closer to midnight, but doing it in a very sort of rational and clinical way. Um, and the you know the end game, of course, was. You know, a, a society that, that found order from from chaos. Um, what I find interesting, and, and this is, you know, again, this is true from the from the perspective of the people that, that I study and, and might not be true for every eugenicist that the, the, the ever lived, but, you know, there's really no in- wait, really no evidence that, that these people in Virginia are re- interrogating their beliefs. So, for example, um, you have a eugenicist who practiced for 40 years. Does it really change um, his attitudes attitudes and beliefs. Uh, and, and sort of this is significant. I think this is, you know, significant in terms of, you know, we're talking about science, medicine, technologies. And so their, their beliefs are consistent in 1924, and their beliefs are consistent in, in 1943. And there's just no adjustment to those based on the realities that they're observing. The fact that um, their quest to control the genetic futures of Virginia don't appear to be working as intended, that these problems are persisting. They really, you know, it's a, they really just doubled down on these ideas. Um, and so that's, I, I, I think about that a lot. And, and um, of course, you know, they, they, they died before the complete failure of the movement. But what would they have thought? You know, they, they thought that If we did our due diligence that nobody would be in in the year 2000 nobody would be insane so what would they think of this moment now um and you know i guess i guess i'm happy that we'll never know because (laughs) because their beliefs were, were were pretty toxic but um yeah yeah there's just there's just this this sort of like consistency that tracks through and of course that's that has a lot to do with the fact that you know this wasn't so much a science but a mask that people were wearing to kind of disguise their their pre-existing beliefs.
0: You write Virginia's earliest psychiatrists believed natural beauty could soothe troubled minds. But 20th century eugenicists also saw them as sinister geographies crawling with people they thought of as mongrels. Did eugenics then have an impact on today's view of Appalachians as backwards are so-called hillbillies seen as defectives because eugenics label them that way, and we continue that view today, is blaming Appalachians for Trump based on the legacy of eugenics.
2: Well, I don't I don't think blaming Appalachians um, on Trump is part of the legacy of, of eugenics so much, but but um I, I will say that one of the reasons why I decided to write a book about this topic is that I included um suggestions in my first book that that some of the ways that we discuss uh, rural problems are directly connected to the eugenics movement for example um, there's a cheap stereotype of inbreeding which is connected to the, the eugenics movement but but there's also this sort of like larger idea that um, rural people are are sort of there's there's devolution that happens and and rural people are you know irreversibly compromised in some ways and, and that helps liberate people from the responsibility of, of addressing any, any real plights that might exist by just suggesting that that these people are ultimately victims of their, their biology and, and of their genes. And that kind of still plays out in conversations um, about Appalachia. And so in the first book, I, I talked about this and I used an example of some ethnographic studies that were um, conducted in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, I, and so sort of lo, lo and behold, I ended up moving just down the road um, from those very landscapes. And it was part of the book that, that people really wanted to know, uh, the first book that people wanted to know more about. They they said that, you know, they, they'd heard about eugenics and they studied eugenics a little bit in school, but they didn't know those dimensions. Um, they wanted to know more about connections to to specific locations and specific people and specific ideas that circulate in the present. And by far and away that um, those were parts of the book that people really sort of, wanted to engage with me and talk to me about. And, um, and I never really left that, that moment of, of just having these conversations with people about those, those aspects of the book. And in and, and, you know, the, the present day, I, at that point, I was doing them um, amongst the landscapes that I, that I write about. Um, and so those, those ideas were, were still like very much circulating in my mind and are connected to the first book in the way that I, I drew from the origins of, of those stereotypes and anti-rural views.
0: Thank <laughs> you. We have been speaking with writer and public historian Elizabeth Cat. She is author of Pure America, Eugenics, and the Making of Modern Virginia. Elizabeth is an editor-at-large for West Virginia University Press and the co-founder of PASL and Applied History and Consulting Company. You can find out more about Elizabeth at ElizabethCatt.com. That's C-A-T-T-E. And you can follow Elizabeth on Twitter, also at Elizabeth Cat. You can also find our two earlier interviews with Elizabeth at our website, ThisIsHell.com, when you search on her last name, Catt. One last question for you Elizabeth I don't know if you remember this or not But our final question is always The question from hell The question we hate to ask You might hate to answer Or our audience is going to Hate your response. You write, sometimes for our own comfort. We also emphasize the failure of eugenicists. We understand their beliefs endured in some way in debates about welfare mothers, immigrants from shithole countries, or work requirements by public aid recipients, for example. But as historian of the 20th century in the United States, Audrey Farley writes in her essay about the cultural legacy of the eugenics movement, a tendency remains to... Situate eugenics in the remote past That emphasis on remoteness As you write on the ways eugenicists tried but failed Sometimes obscures a way of seeing the world they actually made And how it lives on in the present So Elizabeth, by your estimation Did eugenicists fail at eugenics? What successes did they have when it comes to eugenics' lasting legacy to this day? After all, isn't its non-recognizability a success of eugenics on its own?
2: Yeah, I think I think you could definitely make that argument. Um, I think that, um, yes, there's there's lots of ways that, that eugenics lives on in the present from um, sort of the recuperated eugenics beliefs that might travel through sort of social science people like Charles Murray today, um, but also this sort of invisible legacy of eugenics. And that's why it was important for me to talk about places that in my community are visible to bring that past closer and make that past seem real because it is real.
0: And I'm glad that there's public historians like you in that area to make certain that that history still remains and isn't erased. I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show, Elizabeth. It's always a pleasure having you on our show. And people should listen to our earlier couple of interviews with you and check out your earlier writing as well, including your book, What Are You Getting Wrong About Appalachia? Thank you so much for being on our show today.
2: Thank you, Chuck. I hope you guys take good care.
0: All right. You too. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, cap radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, What are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? What are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of, well, whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff Right now at hell.com when you click on support. Remember, this is completely listener-supported. This is hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for what you have contributed to This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. Follow Because we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as we do each and every week. Tomorrow, Jeff empathizes with savages and Samurai. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Hell.
1: Yes, I can do that. Awesome. <clears throat> we have a uh, sluver sluver, sweet. Says, uh, what's Jeff Dorchin going to talk about on his next moment of truth?
0: <laughs> that's what's keeping you up at three in the morning? Uh, yes,
1: that's what it uh, is. Are you
0: sure that isn't Jeff Dorchin writing that? <laughs> no.
1: Unless he has a <laughs> alternate nom de pleur. Uh, yes, maybe. Uh, Tinin S. says that Eminem album where he tried to reinvent himself as an anti Trump resistance hero. Yeah. That'll keep you up. And Philip A. says, my Amazon shift is almost over.
0: <laughs> that will keep you up at 3 in the morning, but you should be sleeping on the job if you're working at Amazon.
1: Andrew S. says, is Richard going to flub-reading my response and cast uh, cost me my chance at some sweat uh, sweet this-is-hell swag? <laughs> well,
0: very well done. Very well done, Richard. I loved your delivery of <laughs> it.
1: Tom G. says, I wonder when will Chuck lower the high standard of cleverness he insists on for answers to the question from (laughs) hell, so that I might have a chance at winning before I die. But dreading that, he'll pick this one just to console my dull wit.
0: Ah, that's sweet. No, I won't.
1: And Bradley A says, "Why the hell did I stay up this late to listen to God's favorite radio station live in Sydney?" <laughs> and else? And that's all we have right
0: now. We are still looking for volunteer board operators who can show up regularly here at Carrie's Lounge or in our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Avon here in Chicago, for our daily. 10 a.m. Chicago time show We are very flexible and if you can only Run the board weekly Or a couple times a month we can work With your schedule if you're interested in this Unique opportunity email me at Chuck remember this possession Does come with a very modest stipend So keep that in mind as well This is also your chance to have access to a professional studio For your own projects as well If you have your own podcast Idea or sound projects of any kind You can get access to our Very nice studio. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at at com. We are also looking for volunteers who can do some more remote work, which we will be describing in depth soon. And I mentioned on yesterday's show how we did get interest in the board op position from the late German artist Egon Schiel, who sadly died during the 1918 influenza Pandemic, but that's not stopping Aegon from wanting to be a member of the crew here on This Is Hell, and we really appreciate that kind of commitment. Overnight, we got a message from another listener who writes Hey, I know Aegon Scheele. Last time I saw him, he was getting his bike back to him from the cops. So, if a dead German artist can be challenging power, we all can. Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at ThisIsHell.com.
1: On Thursday, Intercept journalist Akela Lacey on her report, state legislators make unprecedented, unprecedented push on anti-protest bills. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin empathizes with savages and samurai.
0: And thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways you can contrib- contribute to completely listener supported this is hell including all of our merchandise. you can also support this is hell by becoming a subscriber to our patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me and a classic archived interview each and every week. An interview that cannot be found anywhere else online. All you have to do to subscribe is sign up at patreon.com/ this is hell tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at this is hell.com podcast. Posted shortly after our live stream One last thing before we go As Telesur reported yesterday U.S. Government Accountability Office Acknowledged that U.S. sanctions in Venezuela Have killed tens of thousands of people And harmed the country's economy Especially by depressing its oil production In a new report, the GAO also recalled That the sanctions imposed on the country Under former President Barack Obama and Donald Trump's administrations are also hindering U.S.-backed humanitarian aid to Venezuela. Let's see if uh, President Biden continues the deadly sanctions against the Venezuelan people and his recognition of Juan Guaido as the country's president, despite Guaido never receiving a single vote from the Venezuelan people. Yes, democracy has prevailed in the United States, which means Democracy is under threat in Venezuela and instead of that, being, that story being on the front page of today's New York Times, they ran the breaking news that catalytic converters are being stolen from cars, which is a story that did break. About 15 years ago, when we talked about it here on This Is Hell with our auto correspondent at the time, Dan Litchfield, and the owner of the Hop Leaf here in Chicago, Michael Roper, who had his converter stolen several times back in the aughts. So thanks, New York Times, for breaking really old news and ignoring how, despite what your day after inauguration headlines said, democracy is not prevailing, at least for the people of Venezuela. In fact, the U.S. is currently punishing democracy there. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Elizabeth Cat, our guest today. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I am a very avid race and gender traitor. This is Hell.